Thank you for coming and uh, welcome to my panel here on using assistive technologies to support learning outcomes. Uh, I'll introduce myself. I'm Neil Milliken. I'm by day uh, the global lead for accessibility for Atos. We're a large systems integrator. Uh, we're 110,000 people around the globe delivering all kinds of IT from landing space probes on comets to doing the more mundane stuff like running Windows desktops for people um, and the Olympics and Paralympics and all kinds of stuff in between. So I've got a great panel today um, with some really varied experience. So um, going from left I don't know my left and my right, by the way. I'm dyslexic and I <laughs> get confused easily. Um, from left to right, we've got Professor Amanda Kirby, Robin Spinks, Molly Watt, and Piers Wilkinson. So Amanda is the CEO of DYT Solutions, uh, which is specialising in people's spiky profiles and neurodiversity divergence and understanding what makes people tick and their, how their brains work and matching that to helping them be successful. Uh, Robin is the Senior Strategy Manager for um, Inclusive Technology for the RNIB. Tell me if I've got it wrong, Robin. Um, <laughs> excellent. Molly Watt is, uh, oh, and I have to say, is also a, a member of our DNI board for the IoT as is Molly, who is uh, an accessibility consultant, um, partly on her own, but partly working with Sigma, which is a design consultancy. And then Piers is the disability officer for the NUS and a PITA, as he likes to put it, pain in the ass, um, <laughs> as well, which makes two of us. So um, really, m my interest in assistive technology started about 20 years ago uh, when I um, fell into working for a company in Cambridgeshire that was delivering um, assistive tech for people with dyslexia. Dyslexia is something that runs in my family, something I completely denied and um, was adamant that I didn't have for many years and went through my first degree without using any. Boy, am I glad that I went through my second one using it because it was a very vastly different experience. So I um, somehow ended up going to Oxford and was very lucky to have an experience where pretty much all of the um, assessment work was oral, which successfully helped me mask the fact that I was dyslexic. It's only when it came to submitting written work and exams that things started to get difficult. And what usually happened throughout my early educational career was that I would do really well during term time and during sort of GCSEs and stuff where there was continuous assessment and then do fairly abysmally um, during my exams. But I couldn't see the pattern. Um, so when I actually ended up in, uh, in Cambridge working for this company, I started using assistive techs, was surrounded by other dyslexic people, decided to get myself tested, did an MBA with the use of assistive technology, with distance learning, and the experience was tremendously different. So I've uh, been a big fan ever since. Uh, and this session really is to talk about how we can be using technology to help people be successful. Because without that technology, a lot of people 
probably wouldn't enter into education. I know I wouldn't have done my MBA if I hadn't had access to the technology that was on offer because my first experience of um, higher education had been so traumatic. So um, I think we'll go down the list and allow people to, I've got some microphones to hand out here, it's just like candy. Um, so who's going to go first? One between the two of you? All right, okay, we'll go this way. So um, if you'd like to introduce yourselves and do a better job of it than I've just done, if we start from using my watch hand here. Uh, Are we just doing introductions? Well? Introductions and a little bit about what you're, you're, you're yourself. If you've got slides and you want to... Uh, no, not a slides. Um, uh, I did a, the, the speechy thing, but is that after? That's no, no, go for the no? speechy thing. Okay. Um, so, for those that don't know me or haven't had the privilege of me annoying the crap out of you, um, I am the Disabled Students Officer at NUS, the National Union of Students. Uh, that's a position where I get elected by disabled students in the country from further and higher education. Um, I like to brag that uh, I'm the first in history to get 100% of the vote. Um, that was just because I was uncontested. Uh, take that how you will. Uh, but it did give me a mandate to be um, the PITA. Um, I always get asked about assistive technology in isolation. As a, you know, we all know technology has greatly improved our lives as disabled people. Uh, you know, we've got smart devices and environmental controls in our homes uh, to screen readers and dictation software so that we can complete assignments and work. Assistive technology has made it so students like myself have actually a shot at education. That doesn't mean that there aren't particular barriers. Um, we know that, um, I want to preface this, sorry, with, there, are, there is good practice, I know there's good practice, uh, but my job inherently entails uh, being the voice of disabled students in the UK, which inherently is complaints, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, the sector is amazing. The assistive technology sector is empowering. The rest of the sector is not. We know this. Um, personal story of when I went to university, I was given DSA. Those that don't know, Disabled Students Allowance is DSA. It supports students in accessing education. There's a £200 charge on laptops now. So to be able to be given the assistive technology that's imperative to your education, you have to have £200 up front. In itself a barrier. Additionally, let's face it, the government talk about value for money. So they paid a couple of grand for my laptop, about £6,000 in total for the sister software. Lots and lots of different software to do lots of different things. It was great. Then a couple more thousand on insurance and training. And then they gave, I was there for six years, so they gave additional training, three years in. All in all, let's call it 10 grand. I then get to my lecture theatre. There's no plug socket. So I've got £10,000, lovely little brick. And this is, a, to a certain extent, the problem with the assistive technology sector is everyone treats us as, an, as, a, as a silo of support that means that you may have seen in the news last week and the week before um, students disabled students across the country have been contacting the press because we can't get into the lecture so it doesn't matter what technology we have got we need to start approaching assistive technology in the environmental design and use because if we can't get into the lecture and we can't charge our assistive technology there's no point in having it to a certain extent um, it's interesting that I was called a superhuman this morning. Um, one of the talks of neurodiverse people and people on the autism spectrum in assistive technology are called superhuman or this sort of rhetoric. 
Um, I personally have an issue with that because uh, my diversity is cool, I'll admit it, but the barriers that I face are directly converse with being superhuman. The comic books that I read growing up and that I idolised myself on, Professor X, strangely, as a wheelchair user, featured quite highly. But the issue is, is that the experiences that we face and the assistive technology, the language around it is empowerment, is inclusivity. But the lived experiences of disabled students, in particular disabled staff as well, is converse to that message. And those messages have to include that. The technology is great, VR is great. I've never used VR in my life. For those that can potentially work out why I won't use VR, it is because you've got legs in VR and you walk around. There's nothing virtual about that reality other than looking at everything around me. And that is because the designers of virtual reality assume that everyone's got working legs. They assume that everyone will be a specific height. I've got a friend of mine that is uh, just under four foot. He hates virtual reality because it's a completely perception shift because of the way in which the height is assumed to be a certain height. And that further means that when we've got uh, teaching methods that incorporate virtual reality for environmental aspects, um, or the design of assistive technology, it's never designed by us, it's designed for us. Um, so I won't, I'll try not to go too much in. I know you said 10 minutes, but um, okay. that's okay. Yeah, um, it's interesting. Fundamentally, disabled student inclusion hinges now not on the technology. We've got AI. Domino's has actually rebranded as a technology company, not a pizza delivery company, because they've now got over 15 different methods of ordering a pizza. So they now have 15 technology-based ways of delivering a pizza to you. The technology is not the issue, the assistance is. It all hinges on humans and human interaction. Who is it that you go to when something goes wrong? Who is it you go to for training on assistive technology? Is that person disabled? Is, I think, the fundamental principle for myself in we're going in the future. People that give me training should also be people that use that service. If I, when I went and learned to drive, I'm not allowed anymore for quite a few reasons, um, I was taught by someone that drove every day that was, had to pass a course based on how they used and lived that driving experience so they could tell me the best way to learn because they depended on that being able to drive. If I'm being taught by someone that doesn't depend on that software, they are not going to give me the proper training that I need to use that software. Shortcuts in code and shortcuts in our software were designed by the users because we got fed up of doing it the old way. Bill Gates quite often says he hires lazy people because they'll find the cheapest and easiest solution to do what they need to do rather than the longest one. And that is a, an ideal of inclusive design that needs to be brought into the assistive technology te sector. Um, and unfortunately, I'm going to be a little bit political, the new DSA tender contract mandates that the person that sells you your car in this uh, assistive technology must be also the person that trains you. And that in itself will further in the next five years barriers for disabled students, particularly those of us that are neurodiverse, who also have additional needs or additional adjustment requirements. Because let's face it, we're not the best at social interaction. I had to learn stand-up comedy, well, sit-down comedy, I should say. Yeah, all of my stand-up routine is puns. Um, 
because of that, we have to be taught by the person that we relate to and we choose. And that's not going to happen with the proposed changes. And it's going to shift the sector. So being aware of that is incredibly important. A lot of people think that these contractual things, these nitty-gritty contractual things in the background, don't really impact on us disabled students. But we know, if you're, keep coming back to the human component, we know that disabled students have to disclose to be able to get support, which in itself is a barrier. But if we know that you're a assistive technology staff member or your IT staff member in your higher education, or if you run a private company, the people that we interact with, if we see that they're stressed, we pick up on these clues. If we see that they're stressed, or it was mentioned this morning in a brilliant, brilliant keynote, that if your staff are not paid properly and they're not treated properly and they're not supported properly, we know and we don't want to add to their stress, so we keep things to ourselves. Such as, oh no, I totally know that, that. oh no, you don't need to show me that again, I totally get it now. Actually, no, don't bother coming all the way to me. I'll, 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 just, I'll try and get to the, the appointment on campus. All of these things are the inherent individual human nature of our technology. And I think we often forget that with assistive technology, is there's humans behind every aspect. Implicit biases, of course. I'll try and... Ooh, my laptop. But I've talked a lot about the bad stuff, let's face it. Um, the way in which we revolutionise assistive technology is by making it a core component of school, of compulsory education, of IT, of all qualifications, of all university courses. At the moment, it's only bolt-on. 100% of universities use virtual learning environments. 95% of colleges use virtual learning environments. And every single college and university in the country uses online application processes, as well as core administrative functions, as well as everything else. You need assistive technology to be able to access that. You need assistive technology to apply for DSA to get assistive technology. And yet we're still having this conversation of, we know it's empowering. I'm sure every single one of these wonderful panel members will say just how empowering assistive technology is. If I can't get into my lecture, if I can't use the stuff that everyone's paid for and is complaining, it's expensive. We're not going to fundamentally improve access. And if it's not part of core lecture design, and it's not part of core qualification processes, it's always going to be seen as a bolt-on. And if my access is a bolt-on, it's going to fail. Mainly because we all know screws come loose. Um, but what can we do? Here's one for you. Work with your disability services. Who here is from an institution, uh, higher education or further education? Anyone? Cool, quite a few hands. Who here provides a service to a further education or higher education institution? Work with the disabled student services, because they'll be writing business cases asking for 3,000, this is a true story by the way, 3,000 pounds for a site-wide license for read and write, or a similar sort of software. It was rejected as it's too expensive. The vice chancellor's biscuit budget was tens of thousands of pounds. Was accepted. And they need this joined up anti-silo communication approach to be able to get the fundamental software onto every university computer. Because if you're a coder, like I was, I did physical oceanography, um, or a modeler, which was my key area, but I had to build the code, my laptop had all the assistive software I could want, but it didn't have MATLAB, or Python software, or ArcGIS. Because that's on the university system, but the university system didn't have my assistive technology. But when I finally got that software, that amazing bit of software on my laptop, and this is similar with a lot of students, the laptop specifications didn't take into account that I would be running such a comp computational powerful bit of software. 
So by then, everything on that laptop stopped working if I wanted to use it all at once. And this is a core thing as well. We can't talk about assistive technology without the national context. That the people that are designing the specifications for disabled students' laptops that they get under the DSA scheme aren't taking into account that we are coders, that we are using a lot of processing power, that we're using a lot of RAM and graphical memory. And if the specs of laptops in particular that are the basis for assistive technology don't include this, we're never going to step beyond the same basic issues again and again and again. Yeah. So, Giles, we're going to come back to this, so I'd like to yeah. move on yep, in a second. No, that's okay. Um, I think that as someone that's been a student and has also been a supplier under DSA and actually been part of the previous quality assurance stuff, a lot of the problems uh, that you described are real. Absolutely, I can, I can attest to some of that. The, the, the need for high-spec machines to run this software is real. These machines are not too expensive. What often happens is people go, oh, you need that much RAM? Why? I, I can't see why. You know, you know, I don't need that much. Um, so absolutely, um, there needs to be this whole human-centered approach. I would challenge you somewhat on the uh, someone like me has to be someone like me to do the training. It has to be someone that understands your life circumstance and how you work. It becomes very difficult if you're trying to put someone like me into every single training instance uh, at scale. So there are challenges to delivering that, but I think you can still, you should still expect a quality trained experience through someone that has real experience of what it is that you're trying to do and how you live and how you work and how your mind works. Definitely, and I think the, the first step is better inclusion within those fields. Yeah. Uh, we were talking this morning uh, with the keynote about um, CEOs, FTSE CEOs. So, you know, not a single vice chancellor in the UK has uh, disclosed a mental health condition, let alone lifelong disability. Of that, 25% of the heads of service of disabled students based services have left the field in the last three years. And these are the core individuals in the sector. So when we're looking at employment and we're looking at who's representative, I think I get your very much agree with your point. It's a, there needs to be a shift in making sure that there's professionalisation within the sector. Because I'm sure you will agree that who is a professional is often difficult to ensure, um, as we've had in the, in the sector. And who here knows what a disability champion is? Does anyone know what a disability advisor is? Does anyone know what a, a, a disability consultant is? What a disability um, counsellor is? All of these terms are used by universities and colleges, and yet there's no standard practice of what they are. Assistive technology is similar. Yeah. It's, um, but yeah, sorry. It, it's certainly suffered from being um, an immature industry, if we like to call it an industry. If I can move on to Mark. Yeah, very much. Yeah. And, and, and sorry. you can give us a... A bit about your your experiences and your your work. Yeah, sure. Um, so, uh, hi, um, I'm Molly, and I'm 25 years old. Um, as Neil mentioned, I am an accessibility and usability consultant at my own company, and I work part time at Sigma, um, who are a web design agency up in Macclesfield. Um, 
from a personal perspective, so I'm registered deaf blind, so I was born deaf and then found out I was going blind from the age of four, uh, 12 and was registered blind by um, the age of 14. So I now have five degrees vision. So from an education perspective, um, all in all, it was all pretty rubbish. <laughs> um, I feel like the education sector definitely wasn't ready for me. I was a guinea pig. Um, I'm not, you know, I, I, they basically wanted me to be put in a book in a box of what they felt deaf blind was or deaf was or blind was as a child in primary school um i had brilliant support you know uh, speech therapy hence why i could communicate the way i do and i had tas and um you know teacher of the deafs and they would come in all the time it wasn't until i got to secondary school when obviously as a student you become a little bit more independent and you're moving around mobilizing a little bit more that i actually started to witness some of my deterioration and that was when the diagnosis came in and one of the big gaps that I found was um, I had a teacher of the deaf and I had a teacher of the blind but I had no one for both and they didn't really know about either one and so I felt I was educating them and it was just constant and I didn't really understand what I was going through either um, so obviously for example teacher of the visually impaired would be promoting um, all this auditory equipment so you know Blind people have very good hearing, stereotypically. So, you know, you, you should be listening to your books and reading Braille and things like that. But as someone who was brought up as a deaf person, I was still ironically very visual. Um, so I was having to educate these professionals. Um, and as, as a, just a teenager at that, at that point, it was, it was quite a challenge. Um, but, you know, got my GCSEs, all of that. Fast forward to higher education, which is more relevant here. Um, college was brilliant. I wanted to be a teacher. I uh, wanted to be a primary school teacher and so I looked online, couldn't access UCAS at this point because it wasn't built to be accessible, it wasn't built to be compatible with my assistive technology um, and when talking about assistive tech at this point I was using actually a lot of my mainstream tools so my MacBook with built-in accessibility features, my hearing aid technology, had a note taker, had all of that um, and it was just implemented in, in, implemented into my day-to-day -day role as well as in education. Um, so I was fully prepared with this kind of package to go to take to university, but it wasn't until I was there staring at this UCAS um, website when I thought, actually, I'm gonna really struggle with this. I can't, I can't read it, I can't enlarge it, I can't magnify it. And it was all because of the design. The design in the UCAS was totally inaccessible. So I had to ask my, um, my note taker slash personal assistant, I called her at the time, my PA, I had to ask her to, to look on UCAS for me, which instantly took that independence away from me. You know, I was actually, I was uh, 18 at the time, and I was older than everybody else. Um, and I remember be feeling really frustrated because I'd gotten so far, I'd done really well, um, and I was really looking forward to my next phase in life. Um, found a degree that I wanted to do, primary, primary education with an art specialism. And one of the things that they changed around teaching um, at that point was that there was these skills tests that Department of Education rolled out um, that you had to do before beginning your degree. Beforehand, if you were doing a teaching degree, you could do the skills test along your degree so long as you passed them before you graduated. And skills tests, are, it's maths, um, I think English, and there was like some other stuff as well. N not to mention the actual interview for these uh, uh, 
the for the course was pretty pretty intense you know it, they went on for about four hours and you had group sessions you had to stand up and talk which thankfully i was quite you know good at um but the skill sets i could not access so it was all online it was digitized something great i can use my macbook and use my assisted tech this is more you know flexible to my learning Absolutely not. You know, it was set on a timer. I was trying to enlarge it during the standard command plus to enlarge content. Wouldn't budge. Timer was going, you know, so I couldn't access skills tests. So there's me thinking, right, okay, can't even get into university now. Um, so thankfully, because of the college that I was at, they uh, made their own arrangements with uh, Department of Education to roll out their own manual skills tests. So I was tutored and I did my maths and that was very challenging. I hadn't done maths since GCSE, so that was, <laughs> I had to remind myself about fractions and things. Um, but they did it all in an accessible format, so it was printed on buff paper, large text, all of that. So it was catered for my needs. Got in, flying colours, was really, really happy. Got into uh, my first choice university and I, I honestly thought I was sorted. Um, Ironically, as we've been talking about assistive technology, I had my whole package, as mentioned. One of the things they did try to push down my throat a lot was jaws. You know, you need jaws, you're blind, you need jaws. Um, yeah, <laughs> right? And this was, this was really, really, really frustrating because I actually had tried it already when I was about 15 and I tried it again. And it wasn't useful for my visual loss. So I have five degree vision, central vision. And say you're in Microsoft Word and you're writing up, you know, your document, but you want to save something. All of the navigational tools at the top, you can't enlarge. I, you couldn't at that point. So I thought, this isn't of any use to me whatsoever, unless you have it speaking to you or something else, which I would not have benefited from with the hearing aids I had at that time. So I had said to them, no, I would like a map, a map book because I will be purely benefit from the built-in built -in accessibility features. This is what I've used since I was 12 years old. I don't want to then go start a new degree with a new bit of tech that I've then got to learn on top of that. No thanks, I would rather stick with what I've been using. But they're very much, no, no other blind students use this, you need this, blah, blah, blah. So that was a battle. Um, I eventually did get it, and my printer and a scanner and everything else, I was all set to go. The only problem was my equipment, so the radio aid, um, that came late. That was not the university's fault, but that came late. So the first couple of weeks, I was totally excluded from the, all the, all the le lectures. And the lecturers knew I was in the room. You know, they see me turn up. Oh, hi, what a lovely guide dog you've got there. Then they would totally ignore me. So they've acknowledged I've got a guide dog. You know, I've got her for a reason. She's not just an accessory. She is pretty, but, you know, that's not why I bring her to university. Um, and this got really, really, really aggravating because it got to a point where I thought, you know, I've, I've applied for a teaching degree. And in every lecture, you've talked about meeting the need of every child in the classroom. And every single lecturer, who, funnily enough, had been a primary school teacher in their previous life, were classic old school primary school teachers. They were not inclusive. Um, they didn't, you know, d deliver what they were trying to teach us in, in the classroom. Um, so that said, I talked about the skills test being ex inaccessible. The intranet was inaccessible, so I couldn't co I couldn't access any of the course details online, even though I had my assistive technology. So that's all because of the design. So the lack of design in building uh, the, the intranet and you know all of the other tools that every other student was using, um, I couldn't access. So I had loads of meetings back and forth from head of year, um, disability coordinator, disability advisor, like you say, all the different work 
titles, had no idea what they were doing. Um, and it took up a lot of my personal time when I could have been, you know, making friends and familiarising myself around campus. No, I was in and out of campus talking to anyone and everyone. And I wasn't being heard. And the problem is a lot of people w wouldn't have been like myself, um, you know, confident enough to go forward and talk to someone. Um, but I have a Rottweiler of a mum who brought me up to be very vocal and, you know, shout about what I needed. So I was doing this for a while. Um, but I, I literally had lecturers say to me when I say, oh, I couldn't access your, your PowerPoint slides. That, I mean, I have to say they had promised they would email, email all of the slides ahead of time. That was part of the agreement. None of them ever would. And when I asked one, you know, can you please print out the slides so I can have access to them? Oh, no, that's a waste of paper. Right, okay. Um, and I should mention right at the beginning also, um, I had uh, this lovely lady um, from uh, the, the local authority uh, to my external support system, basically. She came in and she said, right, Molly, we're going to get you um, all good to go for this you know, degree. You're going to have a great time, blah, blah, blah. I'm setting up a training day. And this was just before the course started, you know, so there was actually an inset day for all of the lecturers that I was going to have to come along and she was going to do a little awareness session on Usher syndrome, which is my condition. And just, you know, a few do's and don'ts, a few little tips, but to be quite frank, it's not that, it's not that big a deal. Um, none of the lecturers turned up. None of them. And this is for a teaching degree. No, you think they're all, you know, teachers quite passionate about? No, none of them turned up. So th that was before I'd even started. So nevertheless, sadly, I lasted four months at this uh, university and I was very, very sad, very defeated. Um, I, looking back, I think had I not have had a job, I had a part-time job at Apple at the time who were brilliant, great employer, very inclusive, very different to my university experience. Had I not been working at Apple at this point, I might have stayed a bit longer and fought it a bit longer. But I, re I really felt defeated and that I couldn't do it anymore. The last straw was placement. I applied for Key Stage 2. Um, as I'm sure these guys understand, you have to do a lot of forward thinking and planning. So I was thinking, right, I want to be a primary school teacher, but don't want to be with all the littlies where they'll be on the floor where I'm quite... I'm going to be trampling on them. I don't want to do that. You know, I am blind. Um, and also can barely understand their gibberish. You know, I want, to be a, I want to be in an age group where I could actually hear them. So I said to myself, right, I'll teach Key Stage 2, um, year three or four classes. They have their own desk. As a teacher, I would put the desks exactly where I want them. Guide dog would be seated under the desk. And as a blind person, once you're familiar with your classroom, you can get around independently just fine. So I applied for this very specific course for this reason. And when it came to placement, the disability coordinator, um, funnily enough, hosted this lecture and said, right, really excited to tell everyone we found everyone their placements, first placement of the degree. Everyone's got pretty much what they wanted, really, really happy. And then she pulled me to the side after this and said, Molly, it's been really hard trying to find you a placement. And I was like, right, okay. And she said, but we finally found you one, one that, you know, that will have you and Eunice, your guide dog. And I thought, was it really necessary to say that? But okay, thanks. And she said, yes, it's a nursery. And, <laughs> and I was like, are you taking the mick? Um, so I thought, right, I'll go along, I'll meet them, you know, see what they say. Um, but they said, look, you know, we don't want the guide dog in the room. We want them, we want her kept in our own little room down the corridor. 
And I said, this is like asking someone to leave their wheelchair and make your way to the classroom. Like, how uninclusive was that? So I said to them, look, is this because of the children? Because in my experience, children are far better than adults. If you say to a child, you mustn't touch this dog, it's a special working doggy, they won't touch the dog. The amount of times I've come across an adult that comes up to me and says, oh, I know I shouldn't, but she's so beautiful. Countless, that happens all the time. And they said, no, 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 it's just policy. That's, that's you know, we don't, we, we just don't want your dog in the classroom. So that kind of attitude, you know, I, to be honest, now thinking, and it's quite negative, why did I even consider a, a career in education knowing that my experience was pretty awful? <laughs> um, but, you know, so yeah, I was defeated, I came out, but I then pursued a career in technology and assistive um, accessibility because I realised from that experience just how important the implementation of accessibility in design is because everything is around tech, everything's online. Had the accessibility been considered, I would have been able to access my intranet, I, would have been, I wouldn't have had to, I wouldn't have had half the issues I had when I was at uni. Um, but going back to what was said, essentially, the reasons I was failed by my university were the staff. It wasn't actually the tech, it was the staff. Um, but yeah, so I'm now um, in this position where I travel and I, I talk. I don't really talk about this dreary topic, believe it or not. Um, so I use I it and then I kind of promote, you know, good ways, <laughs> which we'll, move on, we'll yeah. move on to, obviously. But yeah. I just wanted to say from a personal perspective, it was a real challenge. I, I'm hearing it's getting better, but that's why I'm in with the Institute of Coding guys to try and steer it in the right direction so that people with disabilities or diverse backgrounds can, you know, fulfil their p potential. Um, and yeah, yeah. sorry. I'll no, 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 back no that's, there. <laughs> that, it's fine. And, and to a certain extent, yes, sorry for continuing to drag up your past. But I think it's really important that we learn the lessons that that, that you've you've unfortunately been put through. Sure. Um, <laughs> because it's very powerful for people to hear how discriminated against you were, because it is discrimination that you experienced, yep. um, and how systemic it is uh, and endemic within the education sector. And it's something that I'm passionate about changing and one of the reasons why I also engaged with the IOC. So. Um, one thing before I come on to Robin is about interoperability with tech, because this is a key thing. It's a key thing in business. Um, what we see as we throw more and more tech at business and education and everything must be digital is that we actually risk excluding more people than we include through this. So we need to be mindful about how we're doing this. So um, making sure that when we do turn up with the £9,000 worth of kit, that it actually works with your virtual learning environment, that it uh, actually meets the user's needs and that we're not making assumptions. It's about talking to people. And quite often, when we're dealing with tech, we forget about people. Robin, if I can hand over to you. Thank you, Neil. And thank you, Piers and Molly. It's really interesting. I think there's a book emerging between our experiences. <laughs> I listened really with great interest to that. A little bit about me. So Neil mentioned I work at the Royal National Institute of Blind People as a senior innovation manager. And actually, my story kind of chimes with quite a lot of what Molly and Piers have talked about. And I won't bore you with a complete rerun of that. But I did mainstream school. So I have glasses on 
they're, they're, they're kind of quite cool looking, I think, but there's actually very little prescription in them. But if I were to step outside, they would darken down and they darken down to protect me from, photo, from bright light. So I'm photophobic. I have a condition called albinism and that results in a paleness and an absence of pigment in the structures of the body, all structures. Um, and that's meant for me that I've been able to see the top letter on the eye test chart. I had a really good idea, so I thought, when I was about four. And I went into the ophthalmologist's office and I had clocked the fact that what you look at is a reflection of the eye test chart. The actual eye test chart is behind the door. So I went in, I had a quick glance round at it and I memorised lots of letters. And I sat down and the ophthalmologist said to me, so how are you getting on at school, Robin, you know, etc. pleasantries. Right, okay, if you could look at the chart, can you tell me what you can see? G, H, R, K, L, M. Fantastic! That's brilliant, Robin! Well done! You know, there was real sense of achievement there. Now, I'm just going to turn it over to this chart. Uh -uh. I can see the K at the top and that's it. And I felt terrible. And I was very small and I thought that's a stupid thing to do. But you know what sticks out in my mind is that because I could see a lot of letters on the chart, I was being praised and I was being kind of applauded effectively. And it wasn't quite as uh, heartwarming when it came to light, of course, that I could only see the K at the top. Luckily for me, that was a very uh, simple turning point. And don't try and pretend that you can see more than you can because you'll get caught out. And also you'll feel quite nervous about it as well. So it stayed with me. I went through mainstream school and then I went to University at Stirling for an undergrad. And then I decided I wanted to become a careers advisor. Um, and, and part of the reason for that was that career guidance at school hadn't been fantastic. But I'd also met a blind careers advisor who I thought was actually the best careers advisor that, that I'd had. And um, throughout university, my friends were working in bars and restaurants, you know, serving pizzas and pouring pints. And I was actually selling used Ford Mondeos and Vauxhall Vectras and Mercedes C-Classes. So I had a little business that was buying fleet cars from companies and selling them usually to private individuals with a warranty. Um, and it was really interesting. People would come along and they'd say, you know, I'd like to come along and look at your, your you know, Mondeo that you've got there. It's two years old, full service history. They'd jump in and they'd say, right, so if you could just, um, you know, take it up to the slip road and then I'll jump in at that point. And I'd have to explain, it's not going to work like that. I have low vision, I don't drive. You don't drive? And you're selling, buying and selling cars? You know, it's the unexpected. And, and again, you know, people don't expect people with a visual impairment to be doing that. So went on to do my post-grad. That went very well. Extremely sociable group of people. I think I've always been the kind of person who has wanted to speak out and, and someone you know, taught me this quite early about talking about and telling people about what you need and how they can help and try and use a bit of humour as well. So I've tried to do that. It doesn't always work. And I've had some of the similar experiences to, to Molly, you know, at being told we'll email you the lecture notes. I would pester the living daylights out of the lecturers on the course until they gave me the material. And, it, you know, 
you feel bad at some point and then you think, well, look, actually, this is just a right of access. Everyone's glancing over at the board and taking it for granted and writing things down. I couldn't do that. I didn't have that option. So I had to go and try and charm people and get them to give me lecture notes. Um, I remember once you actually had to put the printed essay through, in my undergrad years, through the door of the particular lecture, the letterbox. And I remember once pushing it through, and as I was pushing it through, it was being closed up from the other side. So I just pushed it a bit harder. And eventually it went in, and I thought, I better get out of the way before they open the door and see who this is. And I did. I just kind of got away, and I, I don't know whether they opened the door. But I got onto the postgrad course, and great, great group of people, great course. Um, I made a decision that I didn't want to work in the disability field because I didn't feel like it was a huge issue for me to have low vision. Right? I couldn't drive, I couldn't see people unless they hollered at me. But you just adjust, you grow through life and you adapt. And I'd done all the crazy things that everyone else had done, including jumping out of a plane at 13,000 feet with the back door open. That's pretty cool. Um, but I got to the end of the course and, and one, one thing happened that really changed my view. I had a day off, <clears throat> as you sometimes do in a postgrad course. That night, three of my friends from the course rang me and they said, the leader of the course said something today that's made us extremely angry. And obviously I wasn't there, I didn't know what it was. What she said was, there's one person in this class who's going to find it harder than everyone else to get a job, and that is Robin, and that's because he's visually impaired and he can't drive. Now, they rang me to tell me that, and absolutely irate. And I was saying, listen, you know, I'm so touched that you feel, you know, that on my behalf. But please, you know, try not to feel annoyed about it because we'll just tackle it. We'll try and do what we can. So a month or so before the end of the course, I put in some job applications. I got invited down to Birmingham for an interview. And I used this technique at the interview, which is called the interview hijack. And it's where, when the interview panel have finished saying, right, we've now finished our formal questions. We'd like to turn it over to you. Is there anything that you'd like to ask us? And in the interview hijack, what you do is you jump in with a counseling technique where you start counseling the panel because you recognize and they recognize that they're terrified about asking you anything that's to do with disability. Because the law says that you shouldn't talk about that, right? So I said, I think you're all aware on the panel that I'm a person with a visual impairment. Would it be helpful if we had a chat about how that might impact you guys and how it might impact me if I were the successful candidate? And they all looked at one another. And there was this look of horror from the chair of the panel. And then the one on the left said, yes, that would be good. And they started, they all started writing. And I thought, I'm on to something, right? So they had the conversation and they asked a few questions and I said, listen, we're all humans, right? We've all got things that we feel deeply uncomfortable asking other people. I'd like each of you to ask me a question that you feel uncomfortable with about disability. And they froze, and it was kind of like, uh, so I'd, by that point I'd concluded, they either think I'm the biggest like idiot they've ever seen, or they're going to give me the job. There was nothing in between. So we left, asked the usual pleasantries, five-hour train journey home. A couple of days later, I got a letter saying, congratulations, you've got the job. 
So I went in to see Jean, and I said, Jean, I've got some news. That was the head of the course. She said, what's that? I said, I I've actually, um, I've got a job. Really? And do they know that you can't drive and that you're visual? I said, listen, they know all about it. We had a great chat about it. <laughs> so I did it again a week later at another job interview, and lo and behold, I got offered the job. So I went back in, I found her again, and I said, listen, I've got some news. She said, yes, I know you've got news, you've got a job. I said, no, I've got another job. What? What's happening? Do they know that you can't see and that your vision, you know, you can't drive? I said, listen, relax, they know all about it. The third job was with a disability agency. And I went into that having decided that if they offered me the job, I would take it from them and I declined the other two non-disability related jobs. And the reason for that was that I just, it, it struck me at the time, I was about 24 at the time and it struck me that basically the extent to which I felt it was important in my life was quite minimal. It was one characteristic of who I am. But the extent to which other people felt it was potentially pivotal in my life was huge. And, I, and you know that was a real awakening for me. That's why I've that's why I've had a career in the disability industry. So thinking about what what the brief for here and what what do I use? This is a little analog monocular. I've got it around my neck. I often ask people what they think this is for. It's not for looking in other people's windows. You could use it for that, but it's a little telescope. You twist it, and you can you can look at things that are difficult to see. So. The departure boards and railway stations, let me tell you that they're not designed for humans. That's why they're at giraffe height. They're designed for giraffes, right? So giraffe can walk right up to it and see what the yellow text says. So I used to use those. Now I use my smartphone. In my pocket, I've got a really helpful, uh, very clicky piece of um, technology. It's mainstream, um, AirPods, right? It could be another brand, there are lots. Um, you know, lots of great products out there that are wireless earbuds, but you know, super helpful for me in terms of using the screen reader on my phone, using magnification. You know, it's, it never ceases to amaze me. People will be flummoxed by assistive technology, whether it's mainstream or built in. Uh, a friend of mine who said to me that she was using her screen reader on her phone on the way into work, and someone said to her, well, she was using it, excuse me, um, your iPhone, it, the screen's gone off, it's broken. She said, no, 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 I use it with the screen off, with the screen reader. Uh, yeah, but there's nothing on it, there's nothing on the screen. You, you actually need to stop using it, there's nothing on... She said, no, 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 the, the screen turns off. The visual display turns off when you turn the screen reader on. It's very cool. Um, so people are amazed, they're often just taken aback dealing with disability. I think the biggest thing that we need to do is to promote awkward questions. Let's get asking people awkward questions and let's get them to ask us really uncomfortable questions. Because when you do that, that's when the breakthroughs start. Yeah, We deliver a lot of training courses and one of the things I say at the end of it is go on a date with a disabled person. Take them to the pub for lunch. Go on a night out, go to something that you're both interested in and just chat about life and stuff. Don't chat about disability because that's how you get over all your preconceptions and that's how you progress and that's how you move forward. We need to start getting people to feel comfortable with difficult questions 
and just explode lots of the myths and preconceptions that are out there, they abound. So, um, how are we doing for time, Neil? Is that I, good? I think you're, you're pretty much done. And I'm I, done. I'm going yeah, to hand. If that's okay, um, and Thank I'm you. never buying a car from <laughs> Sphinx Motors, one careful <laughs> low-vision owner. <laughs> right, uh, Amanda, I think... Um, Please. Your your perspective is going to be somewhat different, different but yeah. that's great because that's why we have you here. Okay, I'm not going to give my age, okay, <laughs> so I thought that was good. Um, so I'm coming from a sort of different perspective in the sense that I'm a, um, I'm a, was a GP, I'm not struck off, but I'm still a doctor, um, and I was working in general practice when my second child was diagnosed uh, at three with dyspraxia developmental coordination disorder and this started a whole journey but even at that stage I was working the thing that I struck me first of all I was working in a, a practice where 19 different languages are spoken so accessibility to information was something that was always of interest to me because actually a lot of the information we were providing was inaccessible to lots of people so my son was diagnosed and then I started on this journey which was he had difficulties with writing um, yet he had to handwrite. and at that stage and you still have to today you have to do so well with your handwriting that you get a pen certificate which is incredible today that you still have to do so well I had a parent write to me recently that her child had been really trying really hard with his handwriting, he's got coordination difficulties, and everybody else in the class had got a pen certificate apart from him. And you think, well, there is technology out there, and he could use a computer, and, and but he wasn't being offered it, and all the other children. So, wind on, um, I started a centre about 25 years ago for... Uh, because of my experience of being a parent, taking my child to place to place and telling his story. And he has a number of labels at the time. He had dyspraxia and ADHD, and then he had dyslexia. He was given lots of labels by different people in different places. So this was quite frustrating because when we went into school to ask for support for technology, they'd go, ah, oh, maybe he's not as bright as his older brother, which was, wasn't true, but it was inaccurate but getting technology was a bit like your experience of he got a laptop but there was no plug to plug the laptop in and that was 25 30 years ago but things have not changed in some degree as we wind on so I started um, set up a clinic with interdisciplinary clinic with health and educational professionals trying to get a one-place stop and at the time years ago children were thought who were neurodivergent to grow out of stuff so getting to college or university was not going to be a problem because he was just going to be better then and everything was going to disappear which is rather ironical really that he was going to get a card on his 16th birthday and it would all be fine so that was just weird really and stupid and so I started doing research in the field. So I reversed into academia, moved the clinic into the university, and then started doing work looking at emerging adulthood uh, in neurodivergent conditions. And then had realized for quite a long time that, that echoes everything that everybody's saying, is that everybody's different. But you were getting a one-size package. So if you were dyslexic, you got stuff for dyslexia. If you had autism, you had stuff for autism. It was still very diagnostic boxes. And that's if you were lucky, inverted commas, to get a diagnosis. So what I showed over the years was the inequity in the system because it was actually led by the 
likelihood of you getting a diagnosis. You can't get disability student allowance in university unless you've got a diagnosis. You can't get a diagnosis in lots of places if you happen not to have dyslexia, but you've got, say, dyspraxia or developmental coordination disorder, ADHD, for instance. If you don't have the right label, you might not get a diagnosis. If you don't get a diagnosis, you don't get DSA. If you don't get DSA, then you may not get accessibility. So if you don't get the ticket to go through the door, the right ticket, then you don't get the support. So the problem being, and the reality is, each person is different. So, and personal, and the needs you have are personal to that person. So I showed with colleagues over the last 20 years that none of these little boxes are nice and separate. So dyspraxia and dyslexia and ADHD, autism spectrum disorder, dyscalculia, Tourette syndrome are not separate boxes, they all overlap. So this sort of diagnostic box that you have to have to get AT doesn't, is not person-centered at all. And DSA has been driven by a label. So you have a label and then you get a package, which actually, I remember when my son got his disability student allowance, uh, finally, he was given an amazing package of assistive technology, of which 90% of it was not of any good to him because it wasn't things that he needed, wanted, or would use. I kept it because I used it for me. <laughs> but, but you know, you think of you think of the potential waste of money from that. You know, and it wasn't, and the training that didn't go with it wasn't pertaining to him. It was pertaining to a diagnostic label. So about 10 years ago, um, I started developing um, screening tools which wanted to think about how do we understand individuals who and provide practical guidance and targeting what you need in terms of what's more likely to be person-centered for your needs. <laughs> That's okay. I'm stimulating questions anyway, which is good. <laughs> So um, I developed software which um, started looking across uh, neurodivergent areas. So I'm, I'm taking away labels. I'm thinking about people, thinking about reading, attention, social communication, language. But I knew that it was really important that the guidance that we were giving was contextually driven. Different if you're a student, different if you're in employment. I started working with the Royal Air Force um, and thinking about people who were marching, needed different things to people who were in a desk-based job. And then started developing the technology which would provide screening and assessment tools which were accessible but person-centered and contextual. And we quickly started working in countries like South Africa where we were looking at um, multilingual solutions as well. So we had to really think about accessibility, which was person-centered, contextual, age-appropriate, that you didn't get a single solution given by a label that didn't represent a person at all. So over the last 10 years, we've developed um, large-scale software that sits, which is personalized and contextualized for different settings in college and universities. Some universities are using it to screen their students. It's modular. It's got it's person-centered, so it's got well-being tools and study skills and screening tools, employability tools. Because I'm thinking about people. I'm not thinking about left arm or head or nose. I'm thinking about a whole person and what they want to do. And we're actually further contextualizing it. So we work with the fire service and the police service and the prison service. And we work in places where it's extraordinarily difficult to, to think about solutions, which is like in a prison setting, where we're delivering educational provision to where people will have, half the individuals in prison will have a reading age, 
below eight years of age. So accessibility is a very different thing when you're thinking about context. Now, where are the problems? Well, I think the problems are exactly what everybody said, which is it's with people, it's not the technology. Actually, the technology is further ahead than the people who are using it. I'm just doing a piece of work in youth offending up in up north somewhere, um, a place I won't name, but further north in London. Um, and uh, one of the biggest barriers to the use of the technology is not the technology, it's not the young people we're using it with, it's the staff that we are engaging with. So the reticence to take on board using a tablet, which is very easy for them to use, but actually getting a plug to charge it, to um, the, the technology, the forms that have to be filled in, the access to Wi-Fi, actually people's reticence to use any form of technology as well, it doesn't matter what the content or what it's going to do, those barriers are enormous. And I'm winding on a little bit because um, my son is 30-something and his brother has got a child who has developmental language delay and uh, dyspraxia, developmental coordination disorder, and he's in school and he's five and a half. And he's learning to write, handwrite, and he's five and a half. And his handwriting is awful, a bit like his uncle whose handwriting is not great, but he never uses, a, he never writes, he uses a computer, it's not an issue for him. And we abandoned that as an approach a long time ago because it just wasn't, it was a waste of time. I'm seeing my five and a half year old grandchild struggling to write in a classroom when there is technology that means he'll never, in reality, when he's an adult, be handwriting. And the, what's the barrier? People. It's not the technology because the technology is there. And I actually think that's one of the things we have to change is our single approach to our services and delivery, we're still making them label-led. And we have to encourage people how we do universal design, that it's not an afterthought, because otherwise we'll just be going around. And actually, the people who are successful are those who have Rottweiler parents, which I'm a Rottweiler parent, <laughs> I'm proud of it, because if I hadn't fought for my children, and I'm, not, and I'm fighting for my grandchild, actually, they would have had different outcomes. But actually, I see that the people in prison, where one in three are neurodivergent, most of whom have not had any diagnosis, and those are actually in university, entering university, the other end, in the sense, academically, maybe, who are entering university, and many of them are women, who will not have had their diagnosis made because the lens we've done, all the work around neurodiversity has been a male lens. The research is male biased, the tools are male biased. So many of your 50% of people in your universities who are women, a large proportion of them will have been missed as being neurodivergent and they are at risk of falling out because of a system that lacks recognition of systems in place. Um, and there are other groups that are under-recognized. At the moment, it's led by money um, and it's not actually equitable. Thank you. I, I, and I am definitely of the opinion that we need to be helping people to get effective diagnosis much earlier, that we need to be making sure that the whole of the education system is awoken to the need and the knowledge of assistive technology and that we can teach people how to do this. This technology is not expensive anymore. 
there is expensive assistive tech, but there's loads of stuff embedded into our everyday technologies. It's on our phones, it's built into our laptops, there's speech recognition in Word, there's accessibility checkers in PowerPoint and so on. There's automatic captioning. It's not as good as the real people in the other room, but it's pretty damn good. Uh, you know, this stuff's there. These technologies can enable people uh, and can be enabling people quite cheaply. Maybe the computer's too expensive, but pretty much everyone has a phone. Uh, so there's technology there. From my point of view, the issues that, that Amanda just stated are, are, are totally true. We, when we were looking at the, the DSA, and I, I worked in the DSA for a long time, it was totally medically led. There's a medical model all the way. Uh, you're dyslexic, you get this. Um, the way that the system was set up was such that the assessments would be like a sausage factory. You could pretty much tell who the assessor was um, by what kit was being recommended. And it didn't really matter what the person needed. And that needs to change. And we need to design our courses in such a way that uh, fit the way that people learn. Um, it's not good enough to say this is the way we've always done things. Because if we want to succeed as a society, we need people to get, be able to gain skills. And we live in the age of mass customization. So why is it that learning isn't customizable in the same way that all of the rest of our technology is. So I've got, I've got a couple of um, questions for the panel, which um, you know, are going to be fairly quick fire. I only want sort of fairly short answers. And um, you know, so the first one is, you know, it was around, what's your experience of assistive tech in education? And do you use assistive, uh, and, and do you use or support it? So what are the things you use today and find useful? If we start with you going right to left. Um, so, uh, fundamentally, started off from read and write and those sorts of screen reader softwares. Um, moved over to um, colour filters and colour veil, that sort of thing. Uh, the paid for one ish. I can't say that word. Um, but yeah, so I use colour veil now instead because it's free and I don't have to wait seven months for my employer to actually do something. And then uh, I also use speech-to-text, uh, navigation stuff, because uh, my hands go to crap quite quite frequently. Uh, but yeah, uh, pretty much almost half of them, because multi-variant stuff. Yes. Yeah, um, so I have, so the first, uh, probably the main important thing for me uh, were the hearing aids. So I've had hearing aids since 18 months old. So I kind of do live in that kind of age um, where I kind of experienced the hearing aid evolution. So the hearing aid technology has just gotten better and better. And of course, as someone who was going blind, also that importance of hearing aid technology has heightened. Um, so I'm now in an age where um, I'm using smart hearing aids. So basically everything's got an app. Why not have an app for your hearing aids? <laughs> um, and then other stuff for the visual side of things, as mentioned before, is mainly my mainstream technology. So all the built-in accessibility features found on iOS and on MacBooks. So um, I there's actually two different screen readers on um, um, iOS that people 
uh, don't always um, know about. So there's VoiceOver, uh, which was built for people um, who have total blindness, or there's Speak Screen, um, which will just read out content. So I use a lot of Speak Screen. I have large text. I change color filters around. Um, I sometimes flip the colors so it is a higher contrast with dark background with white text. Um, and my Apple Watch, I love my Apple Watch, uh, mainly because of the prominent haptics. So again, for navigation. So if I'm out and about with Bella, uh, it might shock you. Bella is a guide dog that doesn't have a sat nav in her brain. Um, it doesn't mean because I have a guide dog, she knows where Starbucks is. You know, I can't say, Bella, take me to Starbucks. Um, she will take me there safely. The Apple Watch will get, get us there. You know, and it's all through putting on maps, you know, Starbucks and putting the address and the hearing aids are compatible with the watch. So the watch talks to the hearing aids, tells me when to, you know, go right or left through vibrations and speech. Um, and that's all because I have the hearing aid technology that is compatible with the mainstream tech that I've got. So it's kind of my accessibility toolkit and then Bella thrown in there as well. So it's kind of that classic example that tech and kind of the more, well, she's not, well, you could call her human. <laughs> the human side as well um but yeah that's 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 mainly my tech that i use all built-in stuff on on mainstream tech um so i'm using magnification on my smartphone i've magnified it up here just so that everyone can see i can pan around the whole screen built into the operating system like molly also use an apple watch and um, I shared with apple very recently you know a use case for the apple watch that they hadn't thought about when you're a parent of a small child and you're changing a nappy, I hope everyone here who's got a small child or had a small child has had the pleasure of, of doing that, you can actually use your Apple Watch to answer a call from your boss. So you're changing a nappy, you get a call, and you use your nose as a pointer because <laughs> your nose is a pointer and you can use it to click the green button to answer the call. So, you know, Constantly discovering new use cases. Yesterday had a family day out at the National Museum and used the Seeing AI app from Microsoft, which is a fantastic app. And that was allowing me, as a low vision parent, to be able to read the lanyards, they call them, the things that are at the side of the exhibits, just so that I could tell um, you know, my, my son, who's going to be five quite soon and who can see perfectly well, but can't read yet properly, I could tell him about giant sloths and Viking warfare and the first mini that was produced in the UK. There are all sorts of things you'd find in a museum, just turning an ordinary day out into a kind of extraordinary day out using technology. So the watch, the phone, I've also got a wearable device which clips onto my glasses. It's a specialist piece of AT and it's a camera. I think there's still a level of discomfort in the general population with people wearing cameras. Despite the fact that if you travel from King's Cross to London, Victoria and back in a day, you've been photographed 1,300 times. Whether or not you like it, you have been. But there's still a level of discomfort with people wearing a camera that's pointing at a person who's engaging with them. That's maybe understandable to some extent, but we've got work to do in just opening up what assistive technology is and what it can do and the different forms it can take. So uh, excited about this space, but I think echoing Amanda's point that, you know, there's a lot of progress on the front of people to be made. Thanks.
Um, my family story doesn't um, stop with my family, but myself. So I'm of neurodivergent. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. <laughs> so technology is really useful for me. And it's really around organizational stuff, reminders, alarms to help me remember things that I don't have to manage the, that load. Using speech to text, using noise cancelling um, headphones can really reduce distractibility for me as well. Um, and, but it's really things in my everyday life. So it's my Mac, my phone, my, um, I've got Apple, I've just got those things and this is amazing, of cutting out sound. So it's the everyday use of technology that exists rather than looking for new solutions. And I think that's one of the things going back to what I was saying is that we don't use what we've got that's readily available across the piece. And if we actually got people to feel more comfortable and knowledgeable about that, it would open up a lot of doors. We're not even using what we've actually already got before inventing anything else. Excellent. And um, so, like Molly, I actually use speak screen. So this is a great example of how two people with very different disabilities end up using the same technology. I use it because, again, I don't want to use a screen reader. The last thing I want is it, I, I, I'm still very visual, so I, I tend to use it when I'm tired or, or my, I've got brain fog, which quite often happens if you're neurodivergent. Um, and also, um, if there's long documents where I'm going to get distracted after the first or second paragraph. Um, so, so I use that. I, I've used things like uh, mind mapping and, and um, speech recognition to get my, my master's. Uh, and that was great because I could vocalise what it was and I could vocalise my ideas. Um, they would come onto a, a visual representation. I could move that around. You know, sort of, it felt quite physical. I could move my ideas around. I could marshal them. And then you can convert them into a list. And then I could dictate the stuff to the headings on the list. And, and that, for me, worked as a great way of, of getting my ideas out and so on. Um, but a lot of the stuff that I use is everyday tech. But without that everyday tech, I start to fail. You know, I'm much more reliant on the tasks and the reminders and the outlooks. And actually, I have a PA, uh, and I'm so I'm also reliant on Patricia. She's not technology; she's very much human. Um, <laughs> but um, with, without this help, I wouldn't be you know a senior manager within my organisation. I might actually be in custody. Um, having gone the other way because I wasn't a good child or a good teen or oh, I certainly wasn't perfect I looked angelic but um, <laughs> behind the, uh, the the blonde hair and the blue eyes and the wry smile um, th there was mis misbehavior so um, it leads me on to my next question which is really how how much do we think that we should be looking at mainstream tech and and how can we um, get people to understand about the you know the positive impact of mainstream tech on inclusion because i think that it's you, we've already alluded to it but it it's not well enough understood the benefits for for certain groups of people and also conversely the benefits for of assistive tech for a wider group of people than it was initially designed for thinking of captions you know you're in a a noisy environment, so you're in a bar maybe, and uh, the football's on, and they put the subtitles on, because you are, at that moment in time, hearing impaired by all of your rowdy neighbours. 
So how do you think and what do you envisage uh, being some of the mainstream technologies that we're seeing um, being used as assistive tech? And, and so I'll hand over okay. to you. Yeah. Um, I think the more we can uh, it, and let people understand that everyday technology is useful for everybody, but differently useful for everybody, and engaging, and I'm always surprised when I go out and talk about um, readability of materials. <laughs> I'm always surprised when people are surprised. So you go, what, do you look at the accessibility and readability of the content of the materials that you teach? So I think about schools as well and, and training situations. If you think about the people you're teaching, do you check that the words you're using and the content is accessible to the people? And I'm always so surprised at actually how little that's done. So I think we need to start with some very, I don't think we need to start very high in this. I think we need to have a very low, a low, bar. A low bar, which says, let's actually just say to people what's already available. Yeah. And Sorry. Yeah, I was just going to say on that point, I think we're at a moment in time where there's a real uh, blurring of specialist assistive technology and mainstream. And one of the things that leads me to that conclusion is the work I'm doing right now on smart speakers. So I've been documenting a lot of the things that smart speakers are doing for, for me and, and my family from an accessibility point of view. And it's, it's quite staggering. So you know, the, the, the sense in which something was seen as a specialist product, be that hardware, software, services, or a combo of all three, as sometimes it is now, um, that distinction is changing. And most of the people in this room have a huge amount of assistive technology either on their lap or in their pocket at this very moment, but would you necessarily know how to use it? And actually, you know, people, people are carrying stuff around that has great capability from an AT point of view, and it's just about awakening people at large to the potential that that can deliver. You know, the simplest example, hold down the Windows key on your laptop and press the plus button. Watch what happens. You might want to press the minus button afterwards. It's built in to the operating system, but you won't know that it's there until you stumble across it. And I think for all of us, what we can do is encourage people to have more experimentation with it, greater awareness of it. Uh, when I started in the, the disability sector in AT about 10 years ago, Apple had just made the iPhone and the iPad accessible with voiceover, which is incredible. But what we, what we heard often was that lots of people were going into stores and maybe the customer service wasn't quite delivering the level of understanding of AT that they would like. So we set about a really rapid tactic to see whether it would work. And on one day, we went into every Apple store in London, turned on voiceover on every single machine in the shop, and then left. Within 12 hours, we had an email from Cupertino saying, do you guys provide customer service training on accessibility and inclusion? We said, absolutely we do, let's have a chat. And we've got a customer training program happening off the back of that. Now, we weren't trying to get anyone into trouble, we were just trying to say, look at the wealth of capability that's in your store. Isn't it amazing? You can see today, you can hear today, but who knows what tomorrow will deliver? We're not talking about other people, we're talking about people just like us.
Did you want to say anything? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Robin knows me too well. <laughs> um, I was just going to say, actually, there's a lot of um, mainstream technology that my parents are using. Um, like, say, large text, for example. They have their text size larger than I have mine, and I'm registered blind, and they're just a couple in their 50s. Um, and it's basically um, me trying to... I, I'm, I spend a lot of my time trying to change people's perspectives around accessibility, because if we view it as a need for every single one of us in this room, um, that every single one of us will benefit from, it's not just about dining, designing for minorities, it's designing for every single one of us, because something as simple as large text is really really beneficial but then we have large text on iOS and Android devices but then it, there's this thing called dynamic type which is basically in design so when you install an app um, it should be dynamic type enabled which then means the app would automatically enlarge its text size which makes a lot of sense but how many apps do actually do this Robin? Not, not, nowhere near enough. Belly Ellie do it. And it is shocking because when I look at my my, my mum and dad's email inbox or text messages and their text size is massive in comparison to mine, I'm like, you guys aren't blind, but you would benefit from having that large text, that inclusive design implemented. Um, and that's, you know, that's not thinking about just, you know, people that are registered blind. That's, that's thinking about all of the grey areas, I like to think. Um, so... It, it is interesting. I think people need to change the way they view um, accessibility, start viewing it like another example with um, iOS, iPhone. Not that long ago, they've now introduced the option when you're setting up a new iPhone um, to have um, large text and also whether or not you would like dark view or light view. Um, who here has dark mode on in their phones? Yeah, and you probably have it because it looks cool, right? But it used to be an accessibility feature, but they've implemented implemented it into their mainstream setup process for every single person that receives an iPhone. So when you're setting it up, oh, actually, I'd like dark mode on for whatever reason. Could be because you've got dyslexia or because you're visually impaired or you just prefer having a dark background. But it's it's beneficial either way. Um, so that's, a, that's another example where Apple... Yeah, but the, the big guys have, have actually taken on board. Um, but the training, again, as I mentioned before, I worked there part-time, and I often felt that um, customers with disabilities would walk in and all the employees would be like, Molly, Molly, can you uh, go and help over there? Um, and so I had to deliver a lot of you know, in-house training um, in accessibility in the stores. And now, again, with my work with Apple, it's, there's compulsory accessibility training. So not just voiceover, but across all of the features. So now there should be more knowledge for any customer that walks in that buys an iPhone, just like everybody else, will, will then be, be um, taught how to use a product thereafter. It's not a case of you go home and you know you figure it out. Actually, there's a load of features that are available that you don't have to go and find. These guys can show you where to, to find them and how to use them too, um, which is essential. And that, that's not just for disabled groups, that's for everybody. Um, I talk about my, sorry, just quickly, I talk about my granddad, my 81-year-old, bless him. Um, me and him are so similar. We're literally the same. So he's just been diagnosed with um, uh, age-related um, macular degeneration. He's very, very deaf, won't admit it, definitely needs hearing aids. Uh, when I 
you knock on his front door, I can hear his TV blurring, and his mobility is very restrained right now at 81. We recently got him an iPad. He was total, total technophobe. He was like, nope, don't want an iPad. I set it all up exactly how I have mine set up. So um, large text, colour change. I showed him how to use a couple of the apps like BBC Sport, um, you know, stocks and shares, things like that. Showed him how to use it. And now we're more likely to get hold of him on FaceTime than we are on his house phone. Because he's got, he, got, he loves the fact that he can do his food shop online on the app. So he doesn't have to rely on calling my cousins down the road, oh, Matt, can you go and get me some eggs and some milk? He can do it off his own back. He's 81. And I don't, I mean, I was going to say men, but actually everybody, when they get older, there's an element of pride. They don't want to have to keep asking other people for help. They want to do it themselves. So every single one of us is going to get old one day, hate to say it. Um, and so we may all acquire accessibility needs. So that's why it needs to be considered more and more and more um, in our day to day. Before I let you, I just want to say that it's nice that your grandparents are 81. That's the same age as my parents. Should be my <laughs> age now, right? Uh, and and, and um, so it's really about finding the thing to why they want to engage. Find the hook as to why people want to engage with technology. So f again, for my mum who'd retired and abandoned technology as something she did whilst at work. It was FaceTime that brought her back into using tech. My dad, on the other hand, had been using instant messaging to stalk me for the last 25 years. So, uh, you know, people have differing attitudes to tech, um, but everyone can benefit, and technology can give us agency and independence, which is really, really important to our, our self-worth and our, our sense of well-being. So, Piers, over to you. Um, I'm much more of a pessimist, unfortunately. Um, you mentioned something right at the start that I'm just going to sort of touch on to highlight why I have this view. Um, I still get asked weekly uh, if I can leave the wheelchair behind to do stuff. Uh, if I go to I go to campuses, universities quite a lot. Estates teams like, are you sure you can't walk? So I don't think, to a certain extent, we're going to get very far with asking nicely. I'm from NUS. I've got to say that. Um, I think policy and legislative change is essential, and as well as de-labelling what we use. Almost all development in our field has come from, encoding and technology has come from having originally been designed for access. Um, we've got, um, for example, uh, almost all of the adverts that we see infomercials, there was a meme going around a couple of years ago, all the products from infomercials were originally designed for disabled people and then mar mass marketed to non-disabled people without the tag of disability. Blackboard Ally did some research on their bolt-on tool. 95% um, of all of their inclusive design features are used by non-disabled students. And that's because they didn't put, if you're disabled, click this button. They just went, you can do this. And I think that incorporating it into core processes and core design is incredibly important. But to do that, we need to make it essential, mandatory, that all courses, regardless of their subject, and all qualification, have it ingrained within. If every single student in this country that goes to uh, compulsory education was forced through their core modules and curriculum to learn accessibility features as part of their ICT, English, maths, and I, I've not been in school in 10 years, but whatever they do, science. There we go. I did a science. Uh, if, they, if that was 
integrated into the core curriculum at both school, college, uh, university and apprenticeships. In four years, everything would be completely the inverse for us disabled people because it wouldn't just be, ah, I forgot about that. It would be, oh, that I have to do this because this is how I learned to use it. And I think that the way to get that systemic change is challenging the QRA boards, challenging the government to legislate for it. The digital accessibility regulations that came out two years ago have revolutionised universities' response to digital accessibility. But they've been using VLEs for a decade even. The legislation came out after they moved all of online, as you said, with UCAS. If you can't apply to UCAS, what are you going to do? Um, so I think, yeah, very much, I'm a pessimist, unfortunately, and I think the policy change is key. Getting the policy in your university and your institutions to actually say what they're going to do, how they're going to incorporate it corely, because just having, we like to include disabled people, I think, which most of them have, you know, we follow the social model, do you, do you still require yeah. diagnosis? I think is the core aspect of this, is that technology is great, but we need to have core integration rather than uh, systemic bolt-on exclusion. Yeah. I, I'd agree, and, and we have to close in a minute. Um, but I would even go further to say that whilst it's great to have legislation, that legislation is useless if it's not enforced. Mm -hmm. And, and the, the, the public sector web directive is helping in that it is going to be enforced. And, and we've had legislation for a long time saying that it's non-discrimination legislation, which in theory has also covered all of our learning materials, our access to education, and it's been useless. Absolutely useless, because no one was able to take a case. Yeah? Not a single one. And it's reliant on individuals. So having a, an enforcement body to push these regulations forwards is really important for progress. And I think that that's going to be coming in the next few years, you know, regardless of the fact that we've exited the, the, the European Union. So um, I'd like to thank everyone on my panel. It's been a fascinating discussion. And thank you to the audience for sticking with us and, and listening and learning. Thank you. Thank you. We've got about a minute or so, but if you... <laughs> uh, Piers, I want to completely agree with you when you said at the beginning about how many vice chancellors have um, disclosed any kind of like disability. Um, me, um, I've been recently made medically retired as a um, principal from a primary school due to a very recent road traffic accident which has meant I've got both physical and mental health issues. And I think the big elephant in the room here, we talk about accessibility, but we haven't spoken about access for those with mental health issues and awareness, because it's a big taboo, and people don't want to necessarily admit it. And Amanda, with your five-year-old, being a teacher, unfortunately, from government that could change from five years to five years, they want every child to write because the government don't want to put the money in to use the technology to assess children. It's still got to be pencil and paper. It's very archaic, and that's not going to change unless we have an apolitical um, education system. So, Can I just refer him to something? Go on. 
Very quickly, uh, for mental health, um, I've been key involved in the student mental health charter that Student Minds have been co-leading on. It's going to be compulsory almost for every institution further in higher education, plus a couple of same colleges. Um, it's got a social model ingrained into it. Um, it's an ongoing process, so it's not just a, wait, checkbox, <laughs> get this sticker. Um, so if you want to check out the mental health stuff, uh, Student Minds mental health charter is brilliant. Touches students, staff, postgrads, everything is included. Parents and carers, whatever. Excellent. Thank you very much. I believe we have to close now.